I'm reading the last four verses of 2 Timothy 3, if you'd like to follow along. Paul, the apostle, is writing to a younger man in ministry, and he says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. These words are one of the key passages of scripture that inform our understanding of the nature of scripture. Paul says that the nature of the source of Scripture is God himself. He says that the Scriptures are inspired by God. With that in mind, we remember reading the testimony of many of the prophets in the Old Testament who wrote, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, and then what follows claims to be a quotation of God himself, not the prophet's sense of what God would say if God were to speak, but what he actually, in some sense, heard God say. We come into the New Testament and we learn something of the regard that Christ had for the scriptures. There was an occasion on which he was approached and asked, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus responded by asking a question, what do the scriptures say? How do you understand them? The doctrine of the inspiration of scripture is one of the most important of the Christian faith because it is from the scriptures that everything that we know about God and his will and his provision for us is to be found. The first chapter of the Westminster Confession is a strong statement about what the Bible is and about the role the Bible should play in the life of the Christian people and of the church itself. The doctrine of inspiration is that the Holy Spirit stood behind the writing of the word so that when in the Old Testament Moses and Isaiah took up pen to write or in the New Testament Matthew or Paul did the same thing, that while we are able to detect their writing styles and even their vocabularies in their language, the Holy Spirit so directed the process that the result is what we have in their writings are not the finest religious opinions of ancient men, but the word of God. This is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. To deny that doctrine is like going to the grocery store and pulling a can of peas out of the bottom of the pile and the whole thing collapses into nothing but human sentiment, human guesswork, its certainty, its surety is gone. But with this in mind, Paul was able to say all scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means that when you and I take up our Bibles, plagued by the questions of faith and life, we can have the assurance that what we hold in our hand is not the finest of ancient religious thought, but the word of God himself. And according to the text, the purpose of God's giving us his word is that we might know the truth that Christ promised would set us free, that the errors in our thinking and the mistakes we make in living might be corrected, and that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work 
which Paul says elsewhere, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These inspired words in our text about scripture were written not to a man who was ignorant of the scriptures or neglecting the habit of reading the scriptures. They were written to a man who was well-schooled in the scriptures and devoted to them, even, Paul says, from childhood. My sermon this morning is about the source of Timothy's knowledge of the scriptures and his love for the word of God. And that was a lady named Eunice, who was Timothy's mother. There are many issues facing Christians and the church at this time in which we live. But one of those issues has to do with male and female, and whether in the eyes of God they are identical or they are different, and if they are different, how they are different, and whether those differences, if they exist at all, have any bearing at all on our understanding of the locus authority intended by God in the home and in the church. It's an important question to face in any age. But it's an issue that is particularly hard to face with an open mind in our time because we come to the question influenced by the biases of the culture that surrounds us. But for those of you who are interested in the question and understand that we should look to the Bible, first of all, for an answer, there is an observation that you might find helpful. And that is that when we read the lives of great people in the scriptures, people who made great contributions to the work of God upon the earth, and any reference is made to their parentage, we often find the name of their father. We very seldom find the name of their mother. And the open-minded person hungering and thirsting after the truth of God has to wonder, why is this? In the Old Testament, we read of Noah and Abraham and Joshua and Gideon and David. And in the New Testament, we find historical references to Joseph and Mary, to James and John, to Peter and Andrew, to Paul and Luke. And in each case, if their fathers are mentioned, their mothers are not. But there are mothers mentioned in the Bible. And we find that from most of them, we have important lessons to learn, which suggests perhaps why their names are mentioned. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we read of the first woman, the first wife, the first mother. Her name, of course, is Eve. She was at one time the mother of Cain and Abel, later of Seth and several sisters who are not named. Eve passed through the first pregnancy in human history without having a library filled with books on natural things, without having an older woman like a mother or an aunt to explain to her these strange and possibly frightening things that were happening to her body. And later, she suffered the treachery of one of her sons and the death of another without the comforting presence of another woman who had perhaps earlier in life walked at least one of those valleys before her. We remember Sarah, the mother of Isaac, a strong woman who with her husband Abraham traveled hundreds of miles away from all that was familiar to them and beloved by them, who crossed countless national and tribal borders, 
facing the rigors of living as nomads in the midst of heathen peoples, a lady held up by Peter as an example for Christian wives to imitate, because Peter said she recognized the divinely appointed authority of her husband in their marriage, even calling him Lord, Peter said, and in return was deeply loved and respected by her husband, who bemoaned her barrenness, and we are told laughed out loud when she received the news that a child would be coming. In the opening chapters of Exodus, we read of a mother named Jochebed. She was the mother, some of you will remember, of Moses, who clung to and practiced her faith in a dominant pagan society and found in that faith the courage to defy a tyrant in order to protect her child. Samuel's mother, Hannah, is mentioned by name. A lady who had all that a woman could desire in life except a child, a lady who pled with the Lord about her condition with tears and was a faithful, godly mother to the son who was eventually given to her. In the book of Ruth, we read of Ruth, the mother of Obed. We're told of her great sadness as a young widow, of the sacrificial depth of her devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and of the blessings of God that eventually placed her in the lineage of Jesus himself. Arguably, the most important mother referred to in the Bible is found in the New Testament, and that, of course, is Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus. We're deeply impressed by her willingness to serve God, even at the cost of her own reputation, and are thankful for her obedience and faithfulness that play significant roles in our redemption. But for our consideration today, I would like to look briefly with you at this woman named Eunice, who is the mother of Timothy. She is mentioned only once in the scriptures, but we know enough of her to learn something of significance from her. About her life and circumstances, we know almost nothing. She was a Jewess or a female Hebrew. She, too, was raised by a godly mother named Lois, who is also credited by Paul with having a godly influence in the life of Timothy as he was growing up, suggesting that she may have lived with her daughter and son-in-law or lived very close to them. Eunice was married to a Greek man. The family lived in Lystra in Asia Minor, where we might guess that Timothy's father was the owner and the operator of the local Coney Island family restaurant perhaps the original Angelos, who knows. But he was not a believer, but evidently was a tolerant man who allowed his wife to teach her faith to their son, which made Eunice alone entirely responsible for whatever religious education and spiritual nurture Timothy would receive. And that she was faithful in fulfilling this responsibility is clear from Paul's statement to Timothy that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. It might have been because of Eunice's faith and influence that Timothy was given the name Timothy, which means venerating God. Timothy is first mentioned in the opening verses of Acts 16, which are the beginning of the record of Paul's second 
missionary journey. There we find him revisiting churches in Asia Minor, churches established during his first missionary journey. And during that time, a young man by the name of Timothy came to the attention of the elders in his church. They were impressed by his knowledge of the scriptures, his brightness, giftedness, and his love for the Lord. And when Paul returned, they introduced Timothy to Paul, who almost at once recognized his maturity and his gifts, and asked Timothy to travel with him, assisting him in his work. Very early in Timothy's association with Paul, an incident took place that gives us an insight into the reality of Timothy's faith and the depth of his commitment to the gospel and to the earthly work of Jesus Christ. Timothy, as a young man, was circumcised. Ordinarily, a boy born into a Jewish home would be circumcised on the eighth day of his life, but because Timothy's father was not a believer, this was not done. But we read in Acts 15, the chapter right before 16, if I remember my numbers well, we read of a council held in the church to deal with the issue of the law and its application to the church. And in Acts 15, the church gathered and decided that circumcision was no longer required. And so now we come to the 16th chapter and we learn of Timothy's circumcision and we understand that while it was not necessary, it was a practical necessity. For if in the church, Timothy were to bear a credible testimony and exercise effective leadership, given the fact that most of the converts in the church at that time were Jewish, then this was absolutely necessary. And this simple but painful and debilitating act of submission on Timothy's part reminds us that there are times when that liberty that we have in Christ needs to be compromised in order to achieve the greater good of the establishment and the advance of his kingdom. At about this same time, Paul says Timothy was ordained by the elders of the church, which he calls the presbytery, and began to work with Paul, traveling with him, being assigned to positions of leadership and ministry in a variety of churches, and occupying a place very close to Paul's heart. First Timothy begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Timothy served Christ faithfully and well for the rest of his life, which tradition says ended in his martyrdom. For our purposes on this Mother's Day, I'd like to read two things that Paul said to Timothy that make mention to the influence of his mother in his life. In the opening chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul said, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And then just read from the third chapter these words, you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. These observations take us back to the influence of this godly woman in the young life of Timothy, who with the passing of time would become a good and faithful servant of Jesus Christ. 
Eunice's understanding of her responsibilities in the life of her son were derived not from modern books of child psychology and programs on television featuring a doctor named Phil and others, but rather from the scriptures themselves. She was aware of that commandment in Deuteronomy 6 that we read together a few moments ago, which said to all of the Hebrews, and it says to all Christians, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Eunice took this commandment seriously. But there's also the promise of Proverbs 22, where we read, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And from this, Eunice recognized that it was a part of her responsibility to try to shape the character and the values of her son. And then, of course, there's that great hope of every believing mother that her son would one day match the description of a godly man found in the first psalm, where we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Eunice taught her son the things of God with the prayer that the things that she impressed on him would take root in his heart and bloom for the glory of God. That Eunice taught her son the scriptures is plain. How she taught them is not. And we wonder what methodology might she have used. She might have used a legalistic approach to teaching the scriptures, using the Bible as a kind of whip, warning, threatening, stressing always the vigilance and the anger of God, and using the word to control Timothy's life, possibly saying things like this when he went out in an evening with his friends. Timothy, remember God sees as well in the dark as he does in the light. And standing with her hands on her hips outside the door to his room saying, Timothy, how many times do I have to nag you to clean up your room? Doesn't the Bible say you're supposed to honor your mother? But this harsh, narrow method was probably not the one chosen by this lady of grace and wisdom. She might have taught the great adventures of scripture in storybook fashion, using the Bible like a collection of nursery rhymes, one night at bedtime, reading him the story that began, once upon a time there was a boy named Jack who planted a beanstalk. And the next night, opening a different volume and reading, once upon a time there was a shepherd boy named David and a giant called Goliath. One day as they walked along the road, she may have entertained him by telling him the story of a sailor named Sinbad and on their way home, described the adventures of another sailor named Jonah. Too many people teach the Bible to children in this way, with the results that youngsters can't tell the difference between the fables of our literary heritage and the truth of the Word of God. This is probably not the method that Eunice would have chosen. She might have rigidly insisted that Timothy commit portions of scripture to memory, standing over him like a stern taskmaster, denying him privilege until his master or his memory was stuffed with religious verse. 
Such an approach as this can be superficially effective. Our children are able to parrot the words of the Word of God. They can win awards for their memory in Sunday school and come in first in Bible drills. But this doesn't teach them to love the Word and the God who stands behind the Word. Judging from the results of her labors, Eunice must have taught the Scriptures to her son as the Scriptures ought to be taught. One person who has discovered the secrets of life sharing those secrets with another. One person who loves a writer speaking to others of him and his works. Eunice taught Timothy the commandments of God, not so much as a way to avoid his judgment, but as the means by which we might honor God and know fullness of life. She educated him regarding the sacred history of their people, not to inculcate a sense of patriotism in him, but rather to show him the hand of God in all things. She taught him the messianic promises of old, not to help him win Bible knowledge contests at the synagogue, but to shape in him the awareness of his need for that redemption that would one day be found only in the hand of the Messiah. And above all else, Eunice taught Timothy to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's an easy thing for us to, re- to think about the, and imagine the, the wonderful, spontaneous conversations that flowed between Eunice and Timothy, particularly as Timothy matured and came of age, probing the questions of life and considering together God's answers to those questions, examining human need and rejoicing in God's response to those needs. By her faithful teaching of all of these things, And by her struggle and desire to live these things in Timothy's presence, Eunice prepared Timothy for the coming of Jesus Christ, their Savior, and for his important role in the kingdom that Christ would establish. Eunice has something in common with all of those mothers I referred to earlier. Like Eve, who lived centuries before, and Mary, who was almost her contemporary, Eunice, if she lived long enough, knew the anguish of learning that her son had been slain by men unworthy of him. Like Sarah, she knew the isolation of living as a child of God in a pagan culture. Like Jochebed, Eunice was familiar with the frustrations and dilemma of being married to a man who denied or rejected his duty to God as a father. Like Hannah, she was a mother faithful beyond all human expectations in her ministry to her son. And like Ruth, Eunice knew the loneliness of being married to a man who did not share her faith. Like a precious jewel, that Hebrew faith had been passed from generation to generation until eventually it was placed in the heart and the mind and the hands of a woman named Lois, who handed it on to her son Eunice, who handed it to her son Timothy, who was used by God to hand it on to thousands. Not all godly mothers have their faithfulness rewarded in such a conspicuous fashion as this, but the faithfulness of every godly mother is duly noted in heaven, where their greater reward be found in the form of the coveted, well done, good and faithful servant. 
It wasn't too long ago, you will probably remember, that news reports were filled with stories of a herd of rogue elephants in India rampaging through villages, destroying homes, tearing up gardens and fences, and in the process killing a handful of people. Scientists were intrigued by this and studied the matter and determined finally that the cause of this strange behavior of these elephant juvenile delinquents was not related to a drug or to disease or to their diet, but rather to the absence of mature adults who were able to pass on the values and discipline of the herd to their offspring. Either the parents had been killed or taken captive or were pursuing other ends and had placed their young in daycare, with the result that these young elephants were literally raising themselves. And perhaps what is needed among the families of some of God's creatures is needed among the families of other of God's creatures. To the world in which we live, good parenting consists primarily of providing shelter and clothing and food and paying for braces and music lessons and education. And little is said of the great value of passing on faith and values from one generation to another. But to God, good parenting consists, first of all and above all else, of passing on to our children our religious heritage, the principles, the promises, and the commandments inscribed on the pages of his word, which, Paul said to Timothy, are able to make one wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. This is the kind of devoted, godly mother Eunice was. Many of you have mothers like Eunice, and you praise God for their influence in your life. This is the kind of mother that God honors and blesses today. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful for the nurture and the warmth and the safety and the friendships of our homes. These are all your blessings to us, and we thank you for them. But we who in any degree are responsible for young hearts and young minds are moved by this reminder of the enormity of the responsibility thrust upon us by our faith and by your word. And we pray for ourselves, our God, that wherever there is a need, we might become more and more faithful in handing to our children the precious jewel of our faith, which is described and encouraged and required and rewarded on the pages of your word. This we ask in Jesus.